I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. To Luke chapter 19. Two things I want to say on the front end here as you all get back to your seats and, and find, find Luke 19. Um, first off, I just want to say uh, happy anniversary to my wife. Because today, uh, today is 12 years of marriage for us. And if you have been blessed by my ministry, first and foremost, thank the Lord. But second, thank my wife because she puts up with a lot. Uh, so thank you. Love you. But this ain't about us. So let's talk about Jesus. All right. This morning's Palm Sunday. We're going to take a break from our series in the book of Nehemiah. Over the next couple weeks, obviously, we're going we're gonna to reflect a little on Palm Sunday this morning. And then next week, we're going to gather together. And we're going to celebrate the resurrection just like we celebrate every other Sunday. Amen. All right. We're going to look this morning, though, at Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. I want to read through verse 40. And I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. And we're going to read through verse 40. Here... Hear the word of the Lord. It says, when he, and that's Jesus, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And some of the Pharisees from the crowd told, them, told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent... The stones would cry out. And this morning, I want to answer one question. What would the rocks say? What would the rocks say? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we give you all praise and all glory. I ask that you give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we're ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. What would the rocks say? You know, just last year, uh, 2022, my parents bought uh, a new house. They moved into a new home. Their previous home was one they purchased in 1998. I was 12 years old when we moved into that house. It was a great little house. So they, they lived in that house for 24 years. A lot of life happened in that house. Now, I don't know who started the idea. It sounds like something that my mom would do because she's super special like that, and she was in a house full of boys, and so I know we weren't thinking about it. But between the kitchen and the dining room, some of you have been in that house, between the kitchen and the dining room, there was a pocket door. You know what I'm talking about? One of those doors that just kind of slides outside. We never shut the pocket door. It was always open. Uh, but but I, I believe it was my mom had the idea of let's use that door to track our growth. 
uh, as kids. So we'd slide that door. Nobody ever saw it. They didn't know it was there. They didn't know it had been written all over it. We'd slide it, and year after year, we'd write, you know, we'd, we'd put our backs up against the wall, you know, do a thing, put your hand over it, line, write the date, who, whoever's name it was, was this tall. And so this continued for years and years and years. But the amazing thing was that as time went by, whenever we opened that door, that door started to tell us a story. Because as the years went on, we grew, but people got added to the wall. Friends who were near and dear, family who would come to visit, they'd get added to the wall and we'd mark their height and know the date that they were in our house. Somebody wrote something inappropriate about their older brother at the very top corner. I don't know who it was, but it was on the wall. It was telling a story. It was me. (laughs) But it was incredible because as time progressed... Wives began to get added to that wall. And then something amazing happened for my parents. Grandchildren began to get added to that wall. And every time that door was open, it told a story. But it was a story that we wrote down. We put it on the wall. But I've often wondered what the walls of our house would say if walls could talk. If they could speak to everything that took place, the good, the bad, the joy, the heartbreak, all of it, if those walls could talk. That phrase is an interesting phrase, if walls could talk. I know I'm not the only person who's wondered what walls would say, because that phrase seems to resonate with people, if walls could talk. Because I was considering it this week, I learned... I learned that the phrase, if walls could talk, it's been the inspiration for novels and films. It's been the inspiration for historical preservation societies and countless pages of poetry. It's an interesting phrase. It's a phrase that points us to consider what an inanimate object that sees the many things others miss, that hears the conversations that we don't want anybody else to hear, that observes the private and the public measure of a person. What would these things tell us about a moment, about history, about a person? What would they say if walls could talk? But here's what we know. I hope we know it. Walls can't talk. Walls can't talk. Inanimate objects don't possess the breath of life to speak to things that they have seen, heard, and experienced. And to some degree, that makes Jesus' claim in verse 40 all the more amazing. That if people aren't going to praise him, that if we won't lift our voices in worship, he is such a God that dead objects will come to life to give their maker the praise that is due his name. Because all of creation has to bow in reverence to its king and its creator. It's an astonishing claim. If you don't praise me, these stones will cry out. And see, in that statement, Jesus is declaring, there's never been a king like me. Because what other king can make the statement, but then make the statement come true that if you are silent, these stones will cry out. It's interesting to me, I, have, I grew up in the church, so I have heard my fair share of Palm Sunday messages. Uh, now, having been a pastor for well over a decade, coming up on 15 years, I know the tension of trying to teach a Palm Sunday message that doesn't sound exactly like the year before and exactly like the year before, which is notice, which you've probably picked up, which is why I like skip every other year, I just don't do it. But every time I've come to this text... One question has always stood out to me. What would the rocks say? 
So I figured this morning I'd preach to myself, and I'm going to let y'all listen as I try to answer that question. Amen? Y'all got to help me this morning, all right? But before we consider what the rocks would say, we have to consider why they would even speak at all. What makes Jesus a king worthy of rocks crying out? And it's, it's seen in our text here. So I want, I want to show you. Let me show you as we walk towards verse 40. The passage begins, and we read in verse 28 that when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus has just finished teaching. Uh, right before this, this triumphal entry, if you will, Jesus finished a parable. And we read in Luke 19, 12, he says that a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. So Jesus tells a parable immediately before this about one going to get authority to be king. Clearly, Jesus has what will transpire in the remainder of Luke in mind. Palm Sunday, this is the Sunday that is leading into what we call Holy Week, the week that will culminate on Friday with the crucifixion of this amazing king. But that doesn't end on Friday because Sunday's coming. And we'll get to that next week. I can't, I can't get there yet. But as Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time, he is entering to establish his kingdom. Not a kingdom of stone and soil, but a kingdom of soul and salvation. A kingdom that takes up residence on the hill of Zion, God's holy mountain. Jesus has kingship in mind as he enters into Jerusalem. But I want to be clear with you this morning. This isn't a kingship that doesn't already belong to him. Because Jesus was king when there was nothing. Jesus was king when creation occurred. Jesus was king when Satan deceived. Jesus was king when creation rebelled. Jesus has been king in every chapter of the story. Jesus is not reclaiming a kingship that has been lost. Jesus is reclaiming a people that have been lost. Jesus is establishing on earth a kingdom that has, is, and will always be his. But let me show you what kind of king Jesus is. Because in this story, Jesus is revealing to us first that he is the promised king. He is the promised king. Look again at verses 29 and 30. It says, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. Two things that are significant about those verses this morning. First, we have to note where Jesus is. And second, we have to note how he's getting into Jerusalem. See, we learn in verse 29 that Jesus is at the place called the Mount of Olives. And this is a significant place in the Bible. It's significant as it relates to kings. It was the Mount of Olives that David climbed up in 2 Samuel 15 in humility with tears flowing down his face with his head cover as he mourned the rebellion of his own son Absalom as David's kingdom and kingship was in jeopardy. But here we have Jesus not going up but coming down the Mount of Olives, not in fear of losing a kingdom but to establish his kingdom on earth. But more than that, the Mount of Olives is significant because Jesus, by coming down the Mount of Olives, is fulfilling a prophecy. In Zechariah, 
14, verses 3 and 4, he writes, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. Here it is. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The prophets were looking for a Messiah, for a king who would conquer the nations. And here Jesus stands at that very place as a fulfillment of that promise. But there's more. Not only is the place significant, but how he goes into Jerusalem is significant. Verse 30 says, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Well, why does this matter? Well, once again, Jesus is showing himself to be the promised king. Because Zechariah 9.9, the prophet declares to us, rejoice, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Here it is, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt. Church, none of this is an accident. None of this is a coincidence. Jesus is the promised king of old. Church, I'm trying to tell you that everything in the Old Testament has been pointing to Jesus. You missed your amen. Everything has been pointed to Jesus. Let me, let me help you out. He is the promised seed of Genesis. He is the Passover lamb of Exodus. He is the great high priest in Leviticus. He is the star of Jacob in Numbers. He is the curse bearer in Deuteronomy. He is the wall breaker in Joshua. He is the perfect deliverer in Judges. He is the kinsman redeemer in Ruth. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king of 1 Samuel, all wrapped up in one. He is the king of grace and mercy in 2 Samuel. He's a better king than Solomon in 1 Kings. He's a powerful prophet in 2 Kings. He's the seed of David in 1 Chronicles. He's the eternal king of 2 Chronicles. He's our freedom in Ezra. He is the restorer of what is broken in Nehemiah. He is the way out of no way in Esther. He's a better friend in Job. He's the song we sing in the Psalms. He's wisdom made flesh in the Proverbs. He's the meaning of life in Ecclesiastes. He's the author of love in Song of Solomon. Hold on. I'm almost done. He's the suffering servant in Isaiah. He's the bomb in Gilead in Jeremiah. He is the wrath bearer in Lamentations. He gives life to dry bones in Ezekiel. He's the stranger in the fire in Daniel. He is the faithful husband in Hosea. He is the spirit sender in Joel. He is perfect justice in Amos. He is a divine vindicator in Obadiah. He's the second chance in Jonah. He's the sin remover in Micah. He's the peace in Nahum. He's the end of injustice in in Habakkuk. He's the warrior king of Zephaniah. He is the worship rescuer in Haggai. He is the promised king in Zechariah, and he's the son of righteousness in Malachi. But why stop there? My soul's getting happy. He is the divine king in Matthew. He is the servant in Mark. He is the deliverer in Luke. He is God incarnate in John. He's the mission of the church in Acts. He's the righteousness of God in Romans. He is power and love in 1 Corinthians. He is the down payment in 2 Corinthians. He is our life in Galatians, our unity in Ephesians, our joy in Philippians, and he is supreme over all creation in Colossians. He is our comfort in 1 Thessalonians. He's our returning king in 2 Thessalonians. He is our savior to all in 1 Timothy. He's the true leader of 2 Timothy. He's our mediator in Philemon. He's better than everybody else in Hebrews. He is our sanctification in James and our hope in trouble in 1 Peter. He is our guard in 2 Peter and the source of our fellowship in 1 
1 John. He's God in flesh in 2 John. He is truth in 3 John. He is our protector in Jude. And by the time you get to Revelation, you just got to say, this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And church, I'm just trying to tell you, somebody ought to help me declare this morning that God keeps his promises. Jesus is reminding us that he is the promised king. That's the first point. I'm tired. (laughs) But here we go. Not only is he the promised king, but Jesus is revealing that he is the sovereign king. We could say it another way. We could say that he is the divine king. Go back to verse 30. It says, go into the village ahead of you as you enter it. You'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left, they found it just as he told them. Just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Now, I, I don't want you to miss the weight of what is happening here. Jesus, Jesus hasn't been to the village that's in front of them. He didn't get on Expedia.com and go ahead and make the reservation for the state-of-the-art colt that nobody had ever sat on before. No, Jesus is displaying a bit of his sovereignty here. The fact that this is no mere mortal king. Now, what do we mean when we talk about sovereignty? We're talking about rule. We're talking about authority. We're talking about control. We are saying that Jesus has complete control of everything. When we say he is a sovereign king, we are saying that he rules everything. But more importantly, we are saying he has a right to everything. Now, here's why this is important. I read one commentator. I'm not going to tell you who it is because they were really bad. You can find it yourself and make fun of them like I did. Uh, I didn't read it too long. You'll see why. He argues that Jesus must have somehow arranged beforehand to have this cult present for his disciples to go and get it. And he argues that the Lord has need of it had to be a secret password that they established so that they would knew that it was Jesus. This was his reason. He says, because There's no other way this makes sense because if not, this is what he said, it would be divine theft. Jesus would be stealing someone else's property. Church. Again, he goes on and argues that simply saying to someone the Lord needs it doesn't seem adequate enough to convince someone to give up their brand new cult. I shut the book right there. I was done. That was enough for me. Now, in his defense... I get how strange of, event, of an event this is if you're looking at it through earthly eyes. I once heard a pastor give this example. I found it helpful, so I'm going I'm to reiterate it to you. Imagine we finish church, right? Grace, mercy, peace to you. You are sent. Amen. We go out, and you walk into the parking lot, and you see somebody jimmying the lock of your car. Now, y'all sanctified, so there'd be holy words that came out of your mouth. I know it. But you walk, help us God indeed, but you walk up to them and you say, hey, what are you doing to my car? Now they stop and they say, hey, don't worry about it. The Lord needs it. (laughs) I'm assuming the next words out of your mouth wouldn't be, oh, that's cool. Take the keys. 
It's a unique situation. We can acknowledge it's a very unique situation that doesn't make sense if you're looking at it through earthly eyes. But this is where we have to remember, church, this is no mere earthly king. This is the sovereign God of all creation. This is the God for whom and through whom all things exist. And if everything exists because of Jesus, then as Paul says in Colossians, everything belongs to Jesus. It's not theft. It's already his. And as Paul goes on to explain, everything that exists because of Jesus and belongs to Jesus is held together by Jesus. And if everything is held together by Jesus, it's safe to assume that Jesus controls everything. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see, church. There has never been a king like Jesus. Jesus is not a king who possesses his control through coercion. Jesus is not a king who possesses his control through the electoral college or the popular vote. Nobody voted him in. Nobody's voting him out. Jesus is not the king who possesses control because he outsmarted, outmaneuvered, and overpowered his opponents. No, Jesus is a king who possesses control because when he speaks into nothing, something shows up. Jesus is a king who possesses control because everything that exists is held together by his sovereign hand. And here's why that's good news for us this morning. It means that God has never needed you to have it all together for him to work. It means that God has never needed you to have all the resources to accomplish what it is he's called you to accomplish. It means that God has never depended on you to accomplish anything. It means that God is God all by himself. And there are two ways we can look at this interaction. One, we can try to rationalize away the encounter to make earthly sense of what appears to be an earthly king. Or we recognize that Jesus is a king who has a claim to and right to and control of everything that exists. Now, I understand the hesitancy for many wanting to recognize the sovereignty of Jesus. Because if all we know is that he is sovereign, but we don't know anything about his character, you might be left concerned about what a king with such power might do. But here's the good news. Jesus reveals to us his character as a king as well. Third thing I want you to see about Jesus' kingship is he is the holy king. There is a small but significant detail in verse 30. Verse 30, it says, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a cult tied there. Here it is on which no one has ever sat. On which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. The colt that Jesus was going to ride on was a colt that no one had ever sat on. In other words, it was without blemish. Now, this statement has a direct relationship to some Old Testament passages, all pointing to the holiness and the sacredness of this moment as Jesus rides on a colt. For example, we read in Numbers 19, verses 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. This is the legal statute that the Lord has commanded. Instruct the Israelites to bring you an unblemished red cow that has no defect and has never, has never been yoked. Give it to the priest. Eleazar, and he will have it brought outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. We see this time and time again in the Old Testament, the necessity of something being without spot or blemish if you're going to use it for sacred purposes. And in this case, the spotless colt was significant, not for the colt, but for the one who would be riding on it. 
This coat was to be used for a holy purpose. This wasn't just a means of transportation for Jesus. It was to carry the one who was truly without spot or blemish. But there's another tie to the Old Testament that I believe is an even more powerful one. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Ark of the Covenant is taken from Israel by the Philistines. Just a refresher for you, the Ark of the Covenant was the place where the presence of God dwelt. It contained within it the, the, the tablets of the law. It was a holy, holy, holy place. And the Philistines had taken the Ark and they put it in Ashdod, a Philistine city north of, of Gaza. And, and This also happened to be the place where their God, Dagon, resided. So they placed the ark of God in the temple to Dagon. Listen to what happened. Listen, God don't play. Listen to what happens. 1 Samuel 5. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Hold on. So they took Dagon and they returned it back to its place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off, lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. This is why still today, the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. See, God's such a God that he makes you change how you do your idolatry. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory, and he afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw that this was happening, they said, The ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our God, Dagon. So after this, they move it to Gath. And once again, the people are afflicted with tumors, and all chaos breaks loose. And so they decide, let's just send this sucker back to Israel. Well, 1 Samuel 6, we learn what is required to move the object where the presence of God dwells. Come on. 1 Samuel 6, 7. Now then, prepare one new cart, two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. In other words, to carry something this holy, you need something without spot or without blemish. But it doesn't stop there because then in 2 Samuel 6, they got to move the ark again. Now in 2 Samuel 6, David is finally able to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And so what does he do? Well, he places the ark on a new cart with an unblemished animal to transport the very presence of God into Jerusalem. Where's Jesus going? Jerusalem. Hold on, I'm almost there. What Jesus is reflecting in this sacred moment is the very presence of God once again going into the city of God. But there is something extremely significant about this moment. You see, in 1 Samuel 6, when the ark was initially being returned from the Philistines, some of the Philistines looked in the ark and they died on the spot. In 2 Samuel 6, as David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem, it was traveling along the road, and it says that the ox stumbled a little bit. And Uzzah, wanting to help, reached out and touched the ark, and immediately he died on the spot. And in the Old Testament, the holy presence of God kept people at a distance. You couldn't look at it. You couldn't touch it. But notice this in verse 35 of our text. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped him get 
get on. They touched the presence of God. They looked at him and they lived. Oh, church, this is beautiful. In Jesus, the holiness of God is not a threat. It's an invitation. I mean, that is the gospel, is it not? That our sin has separated us from God. We are unclean. We are unworthy. We cannot be in the presence of God. And because of our sin, we deserve death, hell, and the grave for all of eternity. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus. And Jesus is our mediator. He pays the debt that we owe. He died in our place. And he rose from the dead three days later. And now we can approach the throne with boldness. Because Jesus makes it so that God's holiness is no longer a threat to our existence, but an invitation to fellowship. Jesus is a holy king. So what do the people do now in response? They do the only thing that they should do. They praise him. Verse 37. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. They do what they ought to do in a presence of a king like this. They do what we should do in the presence of a king like this. They praise God. Jesus, they'd seen too much to be quiet. They'd experienced too much to be quiet. And Jesus had done too much for them, for them to hold their praise. And so they declare Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And I, I wonder in this morning, if there's anybody in this place who's just seen too much to be quiet. I wonder if there's anyone this morning who can say that Jesus has done too much for me, for me to hold my praise. See, some of us got to remember our stories. The place where Jesus found us when he pulled us out of that pit. The filth we were in when he took our filthy rags and washed us white as snow. All the kindness that God has shown you. How has God been kind to me? His mercies are new every morning. The fact that you're in this place with breath in your lungs is a testimony. The fact that God has kept you, that he is holding you, that he is still working miracles in your life. Here's why I want to remind you of this, though, because seeing and hearing and experiencing is not a guarantee that you will praise. Well, how do I know this? Because the Pharisees all saw it, too. They had a front row seat to the miraculous works of Jesus. They were there because they challenged him every step of the way. They saw it. They experienced it. They heard it. And they refused to worship. Look at what they say in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told them, teacher, rebuke your disciples. It wasn't enough that they wouldn't worship. They didn't want anybody else to worship as well. Some of y'all met some people like that. Here's Jesus' response. Verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Now, this statement by Jesus is positioned to teach us a couple profound truths. But here's one. This statement is positioned to teach us that Jesus wants your praise because he is worthy, but he has never needed your praise. Because he knows what kind of a God he is. And if we won't cry out, oh, the rocks will cry out. 
But this leads to the question that I've wanted to answer all morning. And then I'm done. I'm in my seat. It's not even that long this morning. God help us. <laughs> what would the rocks say? What would the rocks say? Now, we're going to do a little holy speculation here, but track with me, all right? You see, the rocks can only testify about what they know. But can I tell you this morning? The rocks have seen some stuff. Oh, yeah, the rocks have a testimony. They have something to say. Let me tell you about it. Uh, do you remember the rock in Genesis 28? That has a story to tell. You remember, don't you? When God shows up to Jacob in a dream and reaffirms the promise made to Abraham that Jacob's offspring would inherit the land. And God says this to Jacob, I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And then the Bible says that Jacob woke up and he declared, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. So Jacob takes a rock that was by his head. And he sets it up and he anoints it with oil. See, that rock declares to us, I saw a God who is near even when you don't see it. Or you could take the rocks at Mount Sinai. Let's go there. You remember them, don't you? They have a testimony. As God calls Moses up the mountain to meet with him. And God takes these tablets of stone and carves with his very finger the Ten Commandments. These rocks declare, I saw a God of covenant who desires for his people to be with him. Or you could take the rock that Moses struck in Numbers 20 when the people of God needed water and there was no water to be found. And God instructs Moses to speak to the rock and water will come out. But then Moses got all up in his feelings with the people of Israel. And rather than just do what God told him to do, he hits the rock. But instead of God killing him right there, God lets water flow from the rock anyway. See, that water... Or that rock has a testimony as well. It says, I saw a God who cares for his people, but he will not be trifled with because Moses could not enter the promised land. Or you could take the 12 stones of remembrance in Joshua chapter 4. You remember them, don't you? Joshua is leading the people of God into the promised land, but they come to the Jordan River. Once again, some water they can't pass. And so God tells the priest carrying the ark, take the ark and just go stand still in the water and watch what happens. And as the priests are standing still, God parts the Jordan River so the people of God can pass through. And once they all get to the other side, Joshua sends 12 men back to grab 12 stones to set up as an ever-present testimony. These rocks have something to say. They declare, I saw a God who has a track record of making a way where there is no way. I'm almost done, but we got a few more rocks that can testify. Take the cleft of the rock where Elijah hid. You remember, don't you? After seeing the power of God displayed on Mount Carmel as Elijah, he calls down the fire of God to prove there is no God but Yahweh. He's threatened by a woman named Jezebel. After all that, he goes on the run. He does what some of us do, doesn't he? Ain't nobody else but me, God. Nobody else is faithful like this. Nobody else is left. It's just me. And God says, hey, why don't you go wait on the cleft of the rock? And while Elijah is waiting, a strong wind comes that begins to break the rocks that were there. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And an earthquake comes and it shakes those rocks to their core. But the Lord wasn't, he wasn't in the earthquake. And then a fire falls from heaven, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And then finally, a still, small voice. And there was God. And those rocks have something to say. They declare, I saw a God who controls the very forces of nature and yet gently comes near to the broken hearted. 
We don't have time to talk about the rocks that made up the wall of Jericho that declare when the hand of God moves, everything falls flat in his presence. Or the rocks in Nehemiah that declare that God can take the broken, the burnt out, and the beat up and make something beautiful. Or the rock in David's slingshot that declares God has never lost a battle. Maybe none of those rocks do it for you, but I got one more rock that tells a story. You see, there was another rock that had a very specific job. His job was to separate the living from the dead. And what this rock had come to understand was that people die But those who are alive don't know how to deal with death. So they throw people behind me and they roll me in front of it. They can't seem to stop death. They can't overcome death. They don't know how to beat death. So they put the dead in a tomb and then they roll a rock in front of the tomb. Because the living don't want to see it. They don't want to smell it. They don't want to feel it. And one day this rock was called into action. He'd heard that another man had been crucified. This wasn't abnormal for the rock. He was surrounded by other rocks with crucified men behind them. But he had heard that there was something different about this man. Apparently he was a king. They said he was promised from long ago. They said he was a sovereign king. They said he was a divine king. They said he was a holy king. But the rock wasn't, he wasn't getting all up in excitement because he was another dead man. And so he was placed in a tomb and the rock did what the rock was supposed to do. It was rolled in front of the tomb to keep the living out and the dead in. And the rock stayed in front of that tomb on Friday. And it stayed in front of that tomb on Saturday. But then early on Sunday morning, something started to happen and the rock started to move. The rock was confused. There were no people to move it. There was no wind to push it. It was as if the hand of God was moving this rock. But then the rock saw something that it had never seen. The dead man who was placed in there on Friday started walking out on Sunday morning. And that rock has a testimony that I saw a God who death could not keep him and the grave could not hold him. I saw a God who conquered sin, death, and the grave. I saw the triumphant king of kings and lord of lords so make no mistake when jesus says that if people won't praise me the rocks will cry out it's because they've seen too much they know too much they've experienced too much but here's the truth and then i gotta go okay the bible tells us that because of jesus we are living stones we are people for his possession to proclaim the praises of his great name and all i'm left with this morning is the truth that jesus is king he is the promised king He is the divine king. He is the sovereign king. He is the death-defeating king. He is the grave-conquering king. He might just be, I'm sure he is, the king of kings. And he is my king. And so I know what he's done for me. Somebody ought to join me in saying that no rock is going to take my place in praising my king. Because I'm going to praise him. I'm done, Chris. Come on. Come on. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Let it never be said of us that a rock had to take our place. Because, God, we've seen too much. We've experienced too much. We know too much. Jesus, you are not just the king of kings. You are not just the promised king. You are not just the sovereign king. You are not just the holy king. Because of your grace and mercy, you are our king. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be people who recognize our king. And we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.